Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters 15 through 18 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. Chapter 15, The Forge. Will and Lyra help Yorick reforge the knife. Yorick gives each of the children advice, and he is unsure if he has done the right thing. Very unbear-like of him. The Galavespians discover that Will and Lyra are not going to help Lord Asriel. Surprise, surprise. Will tells the Galavespians they can follow him into a new world or be left behind. They all leave together. In Chapter 16, The Intention Craft. Mrs. Coulter is held captive in Lord Asriel's for- fortress. I nearly said forest. <laughs> totally he, different that would vibe. be the best place to be held captive, I think, personally. As he meets with his top generals, she tries to convince them that she is trustworthy while she learns about their operation. Later, Lord Asriel tests his newest aircraft, the Intention Craft. Mrs. Coulter asks him how it works, then steals it. The Galavespian leader, Lord Roke, rushes into the machine before Mrs. Coulter escapes. Lord Asriel explains to the rest of the leaders there is nothing to worry about because she'll become their spy in the Magisterium. Of course. And they also have better versions of the intention craft ready to use. In Chapter 17, Oil and Lacquer, Mary talks about her scientific work with her Mulefa friend, Atal. And Atal recognizes Mary's shadows as Sraf. The Mulefa have known about Sraf for 30,000 years, since the first time they learned to use the seed pod wheels. Mary uses sap from the seed pod trees to construct lenses, which allow her to see dust, or shadows. Or Sraf. Or Sraf. Atal brings Mary- It's like Tolkien up in here. I was just going to say. Four names for everything. Atal brings Mary to Satamax, an elder Mulefa, who tells her that their world started dying 300 years ago, and he hopes Mary's ingenuity can help solve the mystery of why. Chapter 18, The Suburbs of the Dead. Lyra tells the Galavespians about her plan to go to the world of the dead. They don't believe there is such a world, but commit to following the children. Will opens a window to a world with a farmhouse, and they all go inside. The farmer is dead, and Lady Salmachia sees men with weapons coming their way. Will opens a window to escape, but senses a new opening he can make. He opens a window to a world that looks the same as the farmhouse, but the farmer appears to still be alive. The window resists all of them, but after passing through, they discover the farmer is a spirit. On a nearby road, many spirits are traveling. They join and eventually see a town in the distance. 
It's funny, you can't see this because we don't have video, but as I was saying the word SRAF, I was like, I had to do the like left arm sweeping motion. I was going to ask as a joke, yes. so I'm so glad you said that. Yes. That's funny. <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, it's a real conlang. You got to speak it the way it's meant to be spoken. Precisely. I don't... Are there any languages that are like that? Well, so there's sign languages and spoken languages but there aren't any languages that have both spoken and signed components i would say not officially but there is a lot of like hand gestures and other gestures we make when we talk that does convey that do convey meaning are we allowed to say italian (laughs) i'm not gonna lie i was maybe thinking that but or at least that that's what like sparked the idea in my head but there are other things also we do have a lot of body language involved. Yeah. It's why things like, you know, Zoom meetings, particularly with no cameras, are actually much harder because it's hard to tell someone's intention and it's hard yeah. to tell someone's, ah, well, pretty much anything except for their tone of voice. It's why text is even worse. Yeah. And yeah. why emojis are so good. Why emojis are good. <laughs> yeah. Um, general feelings. I just wanted to say that I really feel like we're in the story now, you know, like we're we're kicked off, if that makes any sort of sense. Like all these chapters, even the one that I can see none of us really were into, we're kind of like boom, 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 stuff is happening. Yeah, like for it. sure. I completely agree. It felt like things were really moving, important things were happening, um, and I was, you know, really kind of in the moment for the whole way along. Especially now that Will and Lyra are back together and they're working together again and it just feels like, ah, yes, this is why I'm reading this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just waiting for Amma to come back. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I really liked how each of these chapters is so different in, in terms of like their location. The characters are totally different. But then it feels kind of effortless. It didn't feel clunky going from one place to the other. And he doesn't waste a lot of time describing what each of them is like. And yet they were like very evocative for me. It feels effortless. I think it's some of his best prose uh, that we had for the entire trilogy so far. Mm -hmm. He creates Asriel's fortress in a few lines. And there's that fading out in the world of the dead. That's just a couple, you know, like less than a paragraph. And so, I don't think that stuff's easy to do, and he makes it seem very easy. Yeah, I I know that last episode I said that I don't usually notice Pullman's prose, but there were actually several moments this week where I was really appreciating the the prose itself. Yeah, I hate to be boring, but I agree. <laughs> it, it, it was a nice multiple viewpoint set of chapters each of which had a different purpose, a different telos, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it was. Um, it, I, I really liked it. So going from, we all liked these chapters to, why? What were our favorite parts? I'm, I'll go first. I really liked the confrontation between Yorick and Will. Mm. It's, it's one of the only times when they speak just them two, like directly to each other. And... I noted that it had kind of echoes of their first meeting, but also with subtle differences, like more respect, but also still fundamentally 
they're different. They are not, they don't think in the same way. And it, it mm-hmm. more generally outlines that Yorek doesn't think like a human at all. He's not a human. He needs mm-hmm. things very direct. Yeah, he like clubs him in the head and knocks him down. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> I definitely laughed Will... out loud as I was reading that section. <laughs> Will never had a father and now he does, you know. My father is a bear. Oh, he doesn't understand emotion. <laughs> <laughs> I I will say what I really like about that is that they in that scene it it seems like York doesn't really like Will, but the next scene when he's talking with Lyra and he says no I respect that kid a lot you two deserve each other well and not yeah. only yeah, that yeah. but like Will is the only person in the whole world who I would trust to take you on this journey and like yeah is critical to its success. It made me tear up when he says that to Lyra. Like the first time I was listening back to it and it was like, oh, he's like his bear dad. Uh, my favorite was Marion Attell fishing. Uh, like, there's so many good parts in these chapters, but I just love that they went down to the river to fish and they were like, eh, and they put the net in and just sat down to chat. <laughs> like, it just felt like something you would do if you were working with a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe we'll get some fish, maybe we won't, but whatever. There's other important things. Like, it just felt very real, and it made their friendship feel very real. Yeah, she feels like a fully fleshed out character. And it's really, I really like that Mary is making friends among the Mulefa and is like part of their community in an actual way. Yeah. Uh, I'm My favorite part was <laughs> how Mrs. Coulter goes on this big speech she just basically summarizes her role in the last two books. And she's like getting very upset and she starts to cry. I, I feel kind of bad. Like maybe she really does care about Lyra. And then Lord Asriel's perspective breaks into that moment and says like she is shameless. And he like shakes his head at what a liar she is down to her core. And I like laughed out loud at how... He just is totally not buying it and sees this as monstrous behavior mm-hmm. from her. And like, I was falling for it. Like, it, I don't know. It just felt deft to me. Their whole interaction was the only good thing about that chapter I found. Mm-hmm. Because beforehand, when Azrael is just saying, Lyra's a piece of shit. Why do we care about her? I can't tell if he's lying or not. Mm-hmm. Or if that's really what he thinks. I I think he does believe that. I mean, I think if he thought he she was actually important in any way, he would have made very different choices. I I'm not saying that he doesn't think she she's important, but he literally but like thinking your kid isn't important to the like the grand scheme of what's happening is different than thinking your kid is unremarkable. Like Nobody thinks, well, no good parents think that about their own kids. It seems like he has actual disdain for her. Yeah. Right. No, that's true. And it does seem like, I actually was thinking that when we were reading that, like, when he visits her at Jordan College, I mean, clearly he doesn't care about her that much, but it seemed like there was at least something more between them. Mm Mm-hmm. Than just like, yeah, this like, oh, she's so annoying. I hate her. She's obnoxious kind of thing that we get in this chapter. Yeah. So I don't, I, I genuinely don't know. He might also be coping with like feelings of failure. Like, like Anya said, like he would have made different choices had he known 
her importance and having failed in that way, he's like, well, she was never important. She doesn't matter. Maybe. You know. Especially since Coulter's there, like, telling them she's the child of this prophecy. She's important. Like, yeah. beyond being their kid. And he's just like, meh. Yeah. No, I, th- I think you're right. Now that I think about it more... I buy him thinking that Lyra is unimportant and that he has more important things to focus on than her. But his whole thing about her just being like unremarkable and annoying does feel out of character. The way he ridicules her to to be like, well, she must be remarkable because she made you into a mother. And what a pathetic thing that is. It's like... Jesus, Asriel is a bastard. Just like all around. He's just a, what a piece of shit he is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really interested to see how James McAvoy plays that. And I hope he is able to put a little bit more humanity into that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and hopefully the script will help him out in that way, too. I do think it's in, like I know we're way off topic from favorite part here, but just to go on in this weird Asriel thing, because um, later on when the Galvespians are trying to convince Lyra and Will to go with them to Lord Asriel, and they said no, we have to go find you know my dead friend. Nobody mentions that it was Lord Asriel that fucking murdered the kid. Yeah, I thought that too. <laughs> and that's just really weird. Anyways, sorry. Other people's favorite parts. I think my favorite part from this week was Mary's scientific process for making her shadow dust sroth viewer. One might call it an amber spyglass. One might call it an amber spyglass, indeed. Um, I think it's really interesting. And also, it just felt very realistic to me for like how a lot of my scientific process works, where it is like slow, methodical, takes a lot of time. Um, A lot of discovery happens by coincidence or happenstance, like um, the oil on her fingers, getting on the the lacquer varnish thing, um, being the main breakthrough, and also like her having some of her best ideas where she's not actively focusing on it. Like you kind of focus on things for a while and then go away. Like, I feel like I have some of my best scientific ideas while I'm in the shower. It's always like your brain kind of like solves it once you actually shift your attention to something else. I could go on about shower thoughts for like 20 minutes because I honestly think there's something for me. It's not even in the shower. It's when you just have your hand under the water waiting for it to be the right temperature. I've had my most like thought breakthroughs right there. Or when you're trying to get to sleep. And then yeah, you're like, that too. Oh, damn it. Now I know how to solve the thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was also like one quote in particular that stood out to me where Pullman says, Mary could begin to experiment or rather to play since she still didn't have a clear idea of what she was doing. And I just I love that idea of being a scientist as play, because I think when things are really going well, that's absolutely what it feels like. It feels like plain and fun in a way. It's also an interesting look, and I know like in a very low-key way, about how somebody might feel about doing science when there's no 
money involved. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just like, I'm going to do this thing. Everybody's like, okay, we'll give you whatever you need. Yeah. And she's not like trying to get money or she's not, you know, it's not a capitalist thing. It's just, hey, let's figure it out. And they're like, yeah, what do you need? Yeah. She's not worried about like, how is this going to play into my next grant application or whatever? Exactly. And right. things like that make me, and I'm sure you way more than me, really upset about like all the scientific things we've missed out on because mm-hmm. people were worried about how this was going to make them money. Yeah. Which is a legitimate concern. And I understand that, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I also really liked the ghost worlds. This is my second time reading through. So my first time reading through and kind of knowing where things are going. This all just like really worked for me in a way where I think I wasn't quite bought in the first time. But yeah, the whole description of the world of the dead, the visual description of what it looked like, the parallel kind of world thing, the demeanor and and like characterization of the ghosts, um, it all just, it, it really worked for me. And there's also something just very funny about the chapter title, Suburbs of the Dead. Can you imagine like the HOA of run by ghosts? <laughs> the HOA of the dead. Exactly. The <laughs> HOA of the dead. That's the real nightmare. Yeah. So our least favorite parts, I, I really enjoy that basically all of our points start with the word Asriel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mine starts and ends. As it should. Yeah. In the Asriel chapter... You know, he has Mrs. Coulter tied up to a chair, and then she, like, wants to stay but doesn't want to be tied up, so he unties her. And then she, like, does her whole lying about being a mother or not lying, I don't know, whatever you want to interpret that as. Um, And manipulates the others into wanting her to stay, and then Asriel's like, ugh, now I really don't want her here. But then at the end of the chapter, bringing her along was, like, his whole plan, so that she did steal the thing and go back to the Magisterium to be a spy for them. Yeah, it's really weird. But he wanted her to send her away. But he had a plan. It's like he, but he couldn't just ask her to do that. Like he had to make her think it was her idea. I mean, I understand like the best way to get a manipulator to do what you want is to manipulate them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Make it their idea. Yeah. Yeah. But what it just really bothered me how he really literally thought to himself, well, man, now I would send her away, but I can't because they want her to stay. But then it turned out that he had a whole fucking plan all along that involved her being there. Like, it was just piss poor writing. Why have that line there at all? Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it's his plan. It yeah. just feels like that's what he says. It, at, at yeah, I maybe, d- maybe. I, I definitely didn't interpret it as he had had that plan all along. It was basically... He's just like rolling with the punches and saying like, okay, this can work for me too. But he is also right because we do have insight into Mrs. Coulter's plan via the narrator. And that is her exact plan. So like, it is very weird. (laughs) Like the thing that Caitlin is pointing out is like, it's, it's a little too neat. The last time we saw Coulter and Asriel together was at the end of book one. And that seemed to be the first time they had seen each other in a long time. So, like, given that they do have unspecified interactions later in the book, I think it is kind of setting up their dynamic in a way where, like, if we hadn't had this moment, 
um, we would have just had to have built in that characterization later on somehow, or like it wouldn't have felt as natural. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with that. I found Asriel in this weirdly unlikable, and that does that's not that he's not usually unlikable because he is usually unlikable, but here he does he veers into villain in a way that he doesn't usually do in the rest of the books. Yeah, like I know it's kind of the point. But it feels like it goes from, re- like, he always has a reason behind a lot of what he's doing to some fairly arbitrary things which feel like, you know, ad hoc and on the fly. And I think that it wouldn't necessarily be like that if they explained, I guess, where it was going, what his thought was. Usually he has a, you know... He has a purpose. He has a reason for doing all the things he does. He's incredibly clever, and he uses that to know the endpoints for where things are going. But here he doesn't. It all feels like he's flying by the seat of his pants, and he's just... And and then, again, we get this fairly post-hoc sort of explanation. Oh, well, I, I totally meant for that to happen. It's like, did you, Asriel, though? Did you? <laughs> yeah. We do kind of get some valuable insight now that you said that into the way that he runs his organization that I did appreciate how equal everybody seems to be at the table. You know, uh, King Agunway, the the African forces leader and Lord Roke seem to be like they all seem to be treated as equals. And when he asks for the king's advice when it comes to Mrs. Coulter, like he listens to them and and ultimately does what they want so yeah like it's that still, was it's still written as asriel with all of his ideals yeah it's just that it feels like this if the plot twist had been that asriel had been replaced by a doppelganger angel that was trying to play the bit and nearly got it right i wouldn't be that surprised <laughs> it just doesn't feel like who he is in the rest of the books yeah for sure no i agree with you no problematics or escapades. Escapades. <laughs> what a phrase! Is that how we pluralize that? I apparently asks a Brit. <laughs> no, I don't know. I thought about putting in the problematics, and maybe this isn't problematic. I waffled on it, and obviously didn't write it down. That the way that Mary's chapter plays out, it feels a tiny bit white saviorish to me. There's a lot of stories like this, like Dances with Wolves, uh, things like that, where you have the kind of two worlds situation happening where the person comes from like a sophisticated modern Western environment into the tribal one with nature environment. And the tribal one with nature environment is in crisis because, you know, like, you know, what is technology? It's so overwhelming. And this person in the liminal space becomes able because they are part of two worlds to help them fight back. You know, this is like the Avatar movie or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and it's it's problematic in a lot of ways because it's like condescending and paternalistic to indigenous groups. You know, like you're not sophisticated enough to understand this and things like that. But I don't... I don't know if that's going on here. I don't know. No, I think you're really spot on. And especially because Pullman 
does describe the Mulefa in ways that that actually did make me kind of uncomfortable because it felt the way that like white people describe First Nations, Native American, Indigenous mm-hmm. ways of relating to the land and nature. And it's like everything was in balance. Everything was perfect. And like there is obviously like some validity to the idea that if you're not trying to maximally extract capital from the earth that like you'll you know not be destroying the environment as much just a little bit of validity well (laughs) i don't know there was something that just felt like very fetishy colonial yeah colonial about the way that pullman described it yeah this is really interesting because i like i had never picked up on that before so I'm glad to have it pointed out to me because obviously, but I think I never picked up on it because he does make an effort, however small, to describe the Mulefa as as like their own culture, their own technology, just different, not worse or better, mm-hmm. but different. I don't know if this means anything, but I think he's trying. No, I think he is trying. I mean, I think the language that he, he used in itself wouldn't be that bad but it's like that Mm -hmm. in combination with the white person save us we're not going to help it's not going to be a collaborative project in any way like we're just gonna let you with your superior whatever fix things for us yeah your ability with technology too bad they didn't cast a chinese woman yeah too bad (laughs) this would have helped but i do think this is like an intentional theme on pullman's part not not so much the construction that I'm bringing up the trope of like the white saviorism, but the tension between technology and the environment. I think that's intentional to portray people who are living in a more naturalistic way, who are the ones who are having the main fallout from this and not places like Lord Asriel's highly industrialized world. Like they're not suffering you know, from the catastrophic effects of the portal that he opened on his own homeworld. Right, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil anything, but when you look at the whole book and where this particular aspect of it goes, I think it diffuses this problematic element that I'm talking about. Because it, while Mary is important in that, she's not fundamental in the way that the Mulefa want her to be or that she would be if this was a more dances with wolves avatar type story that's true another thing that you mentioned that i also really love is that like Azrael's there building his whole fucking army and he doesn't even seem aware that dust is a thing that he should be thinking about that's which true. is hilarious since he was the one who first introduced it to the story yeah what's with that now that you say that <laughs> that is weird <laughs> Science. So I had something for science, yes. I just got interested in when they are for reforging the knife. Mm-hmm. Lyra is sent off to find some stones and then heat them by the fire in order to basically inhibit the reaction of oxygen with the hot metal, which is something that we do. Not so much in forging, but in welding, which is functionally kind of what they're doing. Right. It's yeah. a bit weird. Um, 
But so what we'll often use is something called a shielding gas, usually a inert noble gas like uh, argon, krypton. You could use. You say we um, like you weld all the time. Helium. <laughs> I don't. I've actually never welded. I would love to weld, okay. but I just never had the opportunity. One would use. There we are. Is that better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you 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 will use. Yeah, because you're going to be welding now, yes. dear listener. Um, a a shielding gas to stop the reaction of oxygen in the air with the hot metal, which would weaken the structure or otherwise somewhat degrade the quality of the weld. Now, the question here is, what sort of stone would Lyra be heating such that it would release a shielding gas? And I went into a bit of research on this, and I have the more out there but better results option, and the more likely but possibly worse results uh, option as well. (laughs) Bear in mind that realistically, again, we don't tend to use this in forging because... It's quite hard. Just, just there's actually loads of reasons why it's pretty hard to do. Um, you, you don't really want to be directing an a non-flammable thing into your fire, which you're keeping at the right temperature, because that's going to change things. And also, it's a big old waste of gas. I was also wondering about like, so these rocks are releasing enough gas to shield the metal in the knife, but also not enough to crowd out the oxygen in the air that they're breathing like several feet like i mean you know very they're already burning a really hot fire in a cave they're going to be dying of carbon monoxide poisoning probably a lot sooner (laughs) than they're going to be uh, (laughs) oh yeah and (laughs) in a cave like they would pretty much run out of oxygen yeah my mind definitely does not put them in a cave like i make it safer for them in my imagination that they are not <laughs> i in like a cave. to think you know york knew what he was doing oh for sure so right? he picked yeah. the right cave yeah i'm sure he did so the two options for what she could be heating so there are some gas rich meteorites these contain a variety of noble gases like argon and helium um, and radon i believe both of those and radon, yes. Um, basically, any of the um, any of the noble gases. There's a few others that you'll tend to find: krypton, xenon, neon. And whilst they are in virtually all meteorites, they are particularly common in some types of meteorite. Now, we know already that the bears use sky iron, as they call it, which is meteoric iron. Right. And as such, it is not out of uh, belief that they might also use um, other meteoric sources of chemicals for their various things. But in general, I don't think gas-rich meteorites are all that common. And I really don't know how you tell that it has that amount of the, the requisite amount of gas in it for it to be worth it. But we do use things like argon in um, MIG welding and TIG welding. So that's, oh, I've forgotten the acronym off the top of my head. Uh, Metal inert gas and tungsten inert gas welding, respectively. There we are. So the other option that we have, which I feel to be more likely, but I'm still not quite sure and precisely how good of an idea it would be, would be to use some sort of carbonate rock. 
So CO2 is another inert, well, it's not an inert gas, actually. It's a semi-shielding gas in this particular context. And it works to, again, crowd out the oxygen and uh, give you a better quality to your weld, though it is obviously more reactive than an inert gas. But it's also a heck of a lot cheaper. So a lot of gas mixes will use a mix of CO2 and something like argon. There are quite a few types of carbonate rock. I mean, calcium carbonate is the classic, and things like limestone contain that. Now, if you thermally decompose limestone, it releases CO2. Now, that would work, but there is an issue with things like limestone, which is, as a sedimentary rock, they can, if you put them in a fire, they do have a tendency to kind of break apart quite nastily, so you'd have to be careful with that. Uh, you could also use something like dolomite, which is has a lot of magnesium carbonate as well as calcium carbonate in it. Either way, you'd release CO2. Anyway, long story short, um, this feels like scientific fantasy for the most part. I love the idea. I can, I, I can see, I, I like that Pullman did like think about it a bit, but also it, like many of these things, <laughs> science doubt noises yeah that was basically my reaction to although i did not go to welding because i actually didn't know that about welding um but i know i know like in chemistry a lot of times they use um like glove boxes filled with inert gases and i think it's usually nitrogen um, just because I think that's like cheaper and easier to get than some of the the other noble gases like argon and it's stuff. Great if it doesn't react with nitrogen. Yeah, if it doesn't react yeah, with nitrogen. Fine. But yeah, so it, they have these like very well sealed. I think they're usually like plastic boxes with like gloves built into them, so you can kind of reach into the. Oh, not in a car glove box. Go oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Good. No, it's literally a box, <laughs> but one of the sides has gloves built in so you can like manipulate things inside the box. So you have to like like Homer Simpson. Yeah, you have to like <laughs> yeah, put, I was thinking that. Yeah. put all your things in the box, <laughs> then suck out the air, replace it with nitrogen, and then like do your reaction. Right. Um Religion. Right, that's all I had in science. Religion. Okay, so I'm gonna do two things here. One, I I saw this stuff. This is a good opportunity to talk about some more contemporary philosophy and um, and two, to get ready to really talk about existentialism. Uh, I want to talk about being versus becoming. This is like a very old thing in philosophy, but it comes up here, uh, especially with Yorick, who's kind of having an existential freak out, right, over the whole knife thing. He was uncomfortable the last time we talked about reforging the knife and the kids convinced him. And then after he does it, he's like, man, I don't know. What am I doing? Like, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have listened to children. Um, <laughs> I think he's more upset at them being human than children. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? Because in philosophy, the philosophy of being is kind of everything that we've talked about uh, so far. Um, everything is kind of a fixed category. There's humans, there's bears, there's knives. These are distinct things. They have inscribed essences. They can't be changed. Uh, and then the degree that any individual deviates from their inscribed essence uh, is like how good or bad they are at being, at being, 
you know? Hmm. And so that's why Yorick is freaking out. He's not being like a bear. And so he's being like a human. That's not good. I shouldn't feel doubt. Do you have, on the other hand, the philosophy of becoming? And this is, if you take the 20th century version of it, this is called process philosophy. Um, And this is about kind of a flow of associations. Things are always changing. Everything is in relationship to everything else around it. And all of those things that have a relationship to each other are also always changing all the time. Okay. And so in, in this example, when they're reforging the knife, Lyra is doing a job. Yorick is doing a job. Will is holding the knife with his mind. And they're all like as one group doing this thing. Like even the knife is participating. Even the forge is participating in this process of reforging. And so all of them together are doing it. In the being philosophy, this was kind of the teleological stuff that we've been talking about. Change is bad because in exactly the way York is talking about, right? Um, Anything changing is bad because things are what they are. And so to deviate from that is the definition of wrongness. Uh, But for philosophies of becoming fixed categories are a misunderstanding of reality. You're like not understanding that things are dynamic and that you've just plucked out a particular place, time and object from the process and flow of reality and said like, ah, this is a thing, this thing that I have plucked out. This is like essential and inscribed. And it's like, no, like that is just a part of the flow and process. So you think of like, the difference between creationism and Darwinism, right? Creationism says that God made dogs and he made cats and he made birds. And Darwinism says, that well, they have just kind of like branched out from bacteria and stuff like that. So this is process philosophy. It's more modern idea than the being tele- teleological philosophy. If a tree falls in the woods, does it make noise if there's no one there to hear it? Yes, because noise is just uh, molecules of air being compressed and expanded in waves. Hmm. Is that true, though? You think that sound is the perception of the pressure changes? uh, It is just pressure. It is indistinguishable from any other sort of pressure. Now, if pressure interacts with your eardrums, then it is sound. But if it does not interact with your eardrums, then it is not. Good. So Francis has just explained process, the process paradigm of uh, the way of interpreting the world. Where <laughs> <clears throat> exactly what you said, that it needs to, the wavelengths need to interact with the mechanisms, the biological mechanisms of your ear the associated neurological connections in the brain. And then those are interacting with the kind of word that we have that signifies that entire event of sound and the concept of sound. And so that all of those things participate in the answer of no, there is no sound if there's no one there to hear it because sound is a process that requires a network of actors. And the, that network of actors includes ab- abstract ideas, like the concept of sound, the word sound, 
as well as physical mechanisms like the wavelengths of air and the biological mechanisms in your ear. So that's what a process philosopher's answer would be, that there's some social construction happening as well as biological, as well as objectively physical things that are not alive involved in making sound. Like, remember when Yorick talked about the knife having a will? That is kind of like this process philosophy. Like, it is a participant in the interaction of using it. So a part of process philosophy is called actor network theory. And like I've already said, in the forging, you have all of these different actors in it, and some of them are non-human actors, like the knife, the forge, the rocks that Lyra is using. Um, The point being that in actor network theory, actors, quote-unquote actors in the network can be and often are non-human and can even be non-corporeal. So they can be ideas, memories. And I bring this up just to lay the bedrock, like I said, for things that will come up later that fit so exactly with things that happen in this book that I find it startling. Um, So I just want to be able to talk about it and it, it would take too long to do it like all at once. And this chapter, these chapters provide a good time to do it because we have the construction of the amber spyglass, we have the intention craft, and we have the reforging of the subtle knife all happening in the same place. And they all are very similar in that they have these non-living artifacts that are having a kind of um, participation in the process it feels like. Ooh, that's so interesting. I never thought about all three of those things like in the context of each other. And it makes me really glad that we read this chunk of chapters together because I mean, we are kind of doing it arbitrarily based on like page numbers. So like we could have in theory, you know, had two and then the other one separate. But they There's did all land together. World where that happened? How did that happen? Because it was teleologically determined. <laughs> it had to happen that way. Will uses the knife by linking it together, and he has almost physical sensations through the knife that he can feel like, oh, this one is slippery, or this one pushes back, or this one, you know what I mean? Like that's how it's described. And so it's like they're becoming one thing. And in philosophy, that kind of gestalt of non-human actors with humans or with natural things is called an abstract machine. And in actor network theory, that would be one actor because they're together. Even though it's Lyra and the alethiometer or it's Mary and the amber spyglass or it's Mrs. Coulter and the intention machine, in the network, which in their operating, they are one thing, if that makes sense. Like Mrs. Coulter and the intention craft are running away from Lord Azrael's fortress as a thing themselves. That's how they're acting in the network of, you know, changing flow that's happening in that process. Same thing for Lyra telling 
you know, the alethiometer says to do this and Will uses the knife to open the world of the dead. They're one actor together. And it's not the knife doing it. It's not Will doing it. It's them together doing it. This is why the Galvespians can't simply steal the knife or kill Will. They need both. And they have to, like, agree with whatever the plan is. And if they don't, then tough luck, right? So that's what abstract machines are. If you understand what I'm saying there, it's it doesn't have to be physical things. It It is just what would usually be an actor, the knife by itself, and then some kind of natural in the world thing can be living or not living and they combine together to become an abstract machine. So I, I do a bit of work in network theory, though not in this side of network theory. I apply it to traits. I'd be interested to look further at how specifically the kind of contemporary philosophers working on this perceive it, because it kind of feels like putting... It, it basically feels like you end up with the idea that it's a complex system. You You can arrive at the idea that reality is a complex system very easily by a lot of different ways for instance you can say that if you can observe a complex system within reality as such the reality must be more complicated more complex than the complex system within it so a sort of encapsulation argument and as such um the reality must be a form of complex system if the thing inside is a complex system Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. If you follow. Yep. So, you, you know, if, you know, we can then say, okay, so you can you can show a complex system as a network. Yes. Okay. But what do you get out of it? It's it's interesting. I, I don't disagree with it. In fact, I fully agree with it. I think that it is a, well, I fully agree that the, that reality is a complex, complex system, but I don't know what that changes so the reason that i'm bringing this up specifically is because the guy who came up with actor network system that uh, the kind of thing that i'm talking about in the 1980s specifically came up with it because he felt that the reason that we're having a lot of problems with the way that capitalism interacts with our world environment is because of the inscribed way of thinking that things are fixed and have essences and that some things are abstract and some things are physical and that there is not interaction. There's kind of a dualism there of abstraction and physicalism and the effects that that, that thinking that way creates unintended effects that the actor network theory accounts for and predicts and um, would help us to fix the problems that we're having in the environment. And this is part of the reason why I bring this up is because later what it predicts and how it operates is, is going to, like I said, fit so perfectly with what is happening in the book around the relationship between technology and the environment that it's like startling to me. The thing that you get out of it is it models the interaction between our culture and 
climate change in a startlingly predictive way, which this book worries about. It's even worried about it in these chapters, I think. Process philosophy is really important in existentialism to understand yourself as a process and not as an inscribed being, that you have a constant need and potential for change. Existentialists, when it comes to the problem that Yorick wrestles with between being and becoming, one of one of the most famous existentialists in the 20th century was uh, Simone de Beauvoir. And uh, she had this quote that I, I thought was like kind of nailed it perfectly, where she changed from being a, a being. She was on the being team, but she changed to, to the becoming team. Uh, and what she said about that was, I tore myself away from the safe comfort of certainties through my love for the truth. And truth rewarded me. So for the existentialists, it's important that you realize that you're always a process. You're influenced by ideas, things, and people around you. And you're never finished becoming yourself. So in Buffy terms, we're (laughs) always cookie dough. Always cookie dough. Never cookies. You're cookies when you die. You know, you go to the suburbs of the cookie dead. So hungry. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the end of religion. Forever. Forever. All right. Any other notes? I say seeing all of our notes. <laughs> we do have a lot of notes. The bear. The bear. The bear is non-human. Um, I think of him as a person. Oh, that is That's a big maybe question, one of it? my pet peeves about the whole book. Is that he's not a person? Is that the bear is not a person, yeah. Yeah, but what's going on here? Like, maybe he is becoming a person or something. Uh, but he says he he's not... He a personality. He says he's not a human. That doesn't mean he's not a person. Well, does it? No, it... How do we define person? Well, because it's like the Mulefa. Does he... Are they people? Does he attract yes. dust like That's the whole Mulefa? point of Mary there. Yeah. Yes, he... Yes. This is the question, though. Are, is that how we define people? He says he doesn't have a soul though i don't know like if they make armor and such they would attract dust yeah yeah no that's what i soul is its armor that's what i well think i think they're on the cusp is what i feel like you think they attract dust like a child but not an adult maybe because like yeah like they're they're on the cusp of having a soul yeah i think they're on the cusp (laughs) of Like Pinocchio, they'll earn it? Like, what? Well, there was a point we find out where the Mulefa did not have, did not interact with dust. We know that this was true for humans. So it has to happen for everybody at some point. And I don't think that like using tools and having language and understanding things aren't necessarily like mean that you have uh, the same relationship with dust that the humans do. I think that the him feeling doubt and stuff is like the dust is starting to bond with him more closely. I don't know. I feel weird about not thinking that they're people, but I can't necessarily discredit your claims. I think of them as people. Um, First thing that I found just funny was uh, Mrs. Coulter saying, a fine sort of spy I'd be to ask you so transparently when talking to, uh, was it Lord Rogue? I think it's King of No, uh, oh, Yeah, I think it's a Gunway. Yes, way. King Gunway. Um, yeah, so she says she says that, and I, I was looking at it, I was going, well, 
yes, that's that's pretty much how most spying works. Like <laughs> you, it often, and especially the sort of stuff that she's doing, which is very much based around her charm and charisma. Yeah, absolutely, she just ask straight out, play the play the innocent card, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it feels very very naive that he wouldn't be like, yeah, I know. So piss off. <laughs> I, I think the point between... You're obviously a spy. <laughs> I do think the point between their interactions is that she's ensnared him. It's amazing he's got this far in his political career yeah. being quite so easily ensnared. Yeah. Well, I do think that's kind of the point of Mrs. Coulter, that she can ensnare anyone. Yeah, but that feels a bit deus ex machina to me. Well, is great, he, it's going to get worse. He, <laughs> uh, I know. I, I'm aware. It, I don't know. It... It rubs me up the wrong way because it's like, well, you know, she, yeah, but she can ensnare anyone. But why can she ensnare anyone? Well, because she's just that good. But why is she that good? Why is there only one person in the known universe that can fucking see through this shit? Or maybe two if you can't. Well, you know, even Will can't fully. Like, it's, it's just, just Asriel. Like, <laughs> I think it's just well, very Mary Sue in a way. It's very interesting. Yeah, it it is interesting. But I, I agree. But I think Phil, Philip Pullman's whole whatever. His whole thing was setting Phil. Phil, Phil, yeah, um, with setting her up was like that's the whole point of her character. She does this one thing really well. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just that she does it like obscenely well. It, it it's because she's also good at loads of other things. If she was just good at that, but really you know terrible at fighting or horribly in control of X, Y, and Z, then sure. But she's not. She's you know, she's proved that she can use things like a pistol and a rifle. She can survive out in the wilderness. She also can manipulate and get her way in various ways. She's learned. She's everything. Not mm, just good at manipulation. She's emotionally stunted and evil, though. I don't know. So she has one downfall. Admittedly, <laughs> it's a big one. But, like, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that... She's way too competent. I, I would pref I would in general prefer to see her be more flawed. And yeah, I know that that sounds odd talking about Mrs. Coulter saying I wish she was more flawed, but I wish she was less good at everything. In the same way I kind of feel that about Asriel. Yeah. No, I mean I do get what you're saying though about her power at persuading people with charm and charisma feels too good that it's almost like supernatural and it's not that she's too good at it it's that she's deploying it in situations where it's like unless you're literally a wizard casting a charm spell like mm. it's so blatantly obvious it should be physically impossible one could argue like generally i, I do agree with you but one could argue that being able to manipulate people into trusting her is like an actual superpower she's been given for a reason. But I can't really get into why. Ah, and in the same way that... In the same like way it's her teleological purpose. Right, in the same way that Lyra can read the alethiometer, <laughs> Mrs. Yeah. Coulter can put the whammy yeah. on whatever. Well, that's why I said deus ex machina. Yeah. It kind mm -hmm. of... <laughs> maybe, maybe literally, but... yes. So it, it's interesting to bring up, and I, we'll have to talk about it more later. Most certainly. 
I do also think you can make the argument that we only see the times where she deploys her charm such that she succeeds. Yeah. So there may be plenty of times when she doesn't deploy her charm because she knows it won't succeed. So kind of a selection bias, if you will. Asriel even notices that, that she is maybe unconsciously focusing on a gunway because he's the human in the room and the rest of them are non-human, you know, Galvespian, yeah. Angel. And so she knows how to manipulate him the best. Asriel, so also not human. Asriel, <laughs> maybe human. And, oh, knows? sorry, to be fair, they do say that King Roke is not taken in. Like, he does not trust her. It's true. It yeah. just makes him want to keep an eye on her even closer. So that 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 was my point on uh, Mrs. Coulter as a spy. The other one is someone asked for a knife rant. Specifically the fact that Mary has a Swiss Army knife. And talks about how awesome it is. And talks mm-hmm. about how awesome it is. And there are two sides to this that I want to very quickly cover. So Swiss Army knives, they are fundamentally pretty good at what they make. I mean, Victoria Knox make a lot of knives, but they but the Swiss Army knife in general is pretty good at a lot of things. If I was to be you using a knife to do things, like I, I'm an ecologist, I take a knife out with me when I'm out in the field. I do not take a Swiss Army knife because I know I'm taking it out as a knife. A Swiss Army knife is really good if you might need a lot of things a little bit. They were sort of originally <laughs> designed partially to allow um, Swiss soldiers to service their Swiss service rifle, um, the Schmidt Rubin. Because uh, that one of the things that that required was a screwdriver to properly service. Um, so, like, it makes sense to on on top of having a decent, well-made knife, you can also have um, another bit which flips out and allows you to service your weapon as well. You can do multiple things rather than you carrying around a little screwdriver, which you will invariably lose. And they developed some cool kind of locking spring stuff to hold everything in place. Now. Swiss Army knives are good at being Swiss Army knives. What they are not is a survival knife in that sort of way. They're very good if you're in civilization, at least vaguely in civilization. If you are in a world which doesn't really have metalworking, for instance, or if I was if I was going on a long adventure, I would be taking my best knives. I'd take two or three of them because there's nothing worse than losing your knife and then needing your knife. But, like, she probably won't use a screwdriver or a corkscrew in Malefa um, land. But she may well use something like a ream or a, um, a screwdriver. Yeah, definitely. I use screwdrivers for a lot of things. Not much of which is screwing things in. A magnifying glass? Yeah, super useful. Hoof cleaner? Maybe not. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> Wood saw? Well, it's a crappy wood saw. Seriously, if you've ever tried to cut wood with a wood saw on a, on a knife, it's awful. But I'd rather have that than not having it. Wait, what's a ream? A ream is for making a hole bigger, oh. usually in metal. Okay. It's also just a, a thing to point out that Swiss Army knives have had really good advertising. So if she's somebody yes. who doesn't do a lot of fieldwork type stuff, she would just think, yeah, this is a good thing to do, to bring. Yeah, I mean, also, if I if that was what I had, I'd fucking bring it. Of course I would. <laughs> yeah, a Swiss Army knife is certainly better than no knives. 
but I was yeah. just like sitting there imagining her trying to chip away at the wood with a Swiss army knife and be like, oh, that is not the tool I would have brought for that job. <laughs> I do really, no, really love. a decent fixed blade would be nice. Like absolutely love that as soon as she was finished it, somebody was like, why don't you just do this? It's way easier. Yeah. <laughs> with the acid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good. That's exactly how that always goes. Yeah. It makes you wonder why Yorick didn't include like a corkscrew. I mean, they're fixing the knife. Why not really fix it? You know? <laughs> a subtle corkscrew? Yeah. Uh, when when I was getting to the part with the intention craft and stuff, it was making me think about magic systems and uh, kind of even Mrs. Coulter's whammy ability, I think sometimes could have dusty relations. I don't know. Um, but it seems like the intention craft, remember how Azriel was able to like summon children to his mountain because he really needed a child sacrifice. And that's never really like accounted for in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, this seemed like kind of a mechanized version of that. It's like a machine that you put your intentions out there and then it just kind of does it, which is interesting to me that to like when you mechanize magic, when you kind of digitize it. Um, I don't know if this thing has any kind of interaction with dust or if dust makes it possible. I don't think we'll ever get an answer on that, but they seem related to me. I would so. definitely say that dust makes it possible because it involves having to use your demon, like somebody without a demon or within, you know what I'm saying? Their demon inside them. Right. Uh, they, they couldn't drive that machine. That's true. It'd be yeah. interesting to see if a child could. A bear couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Because they don't have demons, but yeah, um, they also in the same way that he, so, like Will couldn't do it. Like there's still people, it's whatever. <clears throat> so I don't know. I don't know if that contributes to our theory of dust. Maybe Mrs. Coulter is good at putting the whammy on people because she can. She's doing something unconsciously with dust. To I don't know. That's a stretch. I think even this is a stretch. But it seemed related to me because I just want an answer of how he summons children to mountains. So they remake the knife, and now it's ugly. And mm. I love that. Yeah. Um, Good. Because they're like this, I feel like it fits their whole theme of being this ragtag group of doing, you know, the not main character stuff, even though they are the main characters, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, hey, there's a big war going on. They're like, fuck that shit. We're going to go solve this whole dead people problem. So I just really like that they no longer have this pretty perfect mythical knife that it looks like it was thrown together by a bunch of people in a cave and it's very different than one might say the other very famous reforged uh blade in uh, british fantasy uh narsal into endural where it came out perfect and beautiful and wonderful and is that a tolkien thing it's it a Tolkien thing, yeah. It's it's i thought of exactly the same thing when when i read it i was like he's right like, if you're gonna, <laughs> it's, did they melt Narsal down and then make it into a new sword? Which I guess is what you would have to do. But if you're gonna, like, do this thing, it should look all messed up, right? Yeah. And Yeah, I think it's on purpose. I think it's even an illusion to Tolkien. I, I would absolutely say it's an illusion to Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you thought of that, too. Um, And it's. It's just really great, and I love that because, you know, the main character gets his sword reforged into this beautiful destiny sword, and they get this little scrap that barely has a handle left because it burned <laughs> off. Right. 
And they're like, oh, we're going to go visit the dead. Have have fun with your war. <laughs> and I really like that. Um, and then we'll just had a really good line about people. He sometimes thinks that they... Wait, I marked it in my book here. <laughs> Maybe sometimes we don't do the right thing because the wrong thing looks more dangerous and we don't want to look scared. So we go and do the wrong thing just because it's dangerous. And and that just is another line of my point of them not being the main characters, even though they are the main characters. Because I feel like, I don't know, I really liked that line. But it, it seems very like I'm the main character in an adventure thing and I'm going to go do this scary, brave thing. And Will's like, I'm not sure that that's the right thing to do. The point in his dark materials is to be yourself and like be true to yourself and not to rise to the occasion necessarily. So yeah, I love, I love that line. It's really good. Um, and then I've got, oh, just the Mulefa's Adam and Eve story or their version of it, I think is very interesting from many points of view. But what I love most about it is when you're reading it, you kind of think to yourself, man, they've got a cool little mythology going on there. But if you ever referred to the Christian Adam and Eve story as mythology, some people would be really angry at you. And I just liked how they told it and how he wrote it so that you could clearly see the parallels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought that was really fun and cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like how I like how she's like, no, it's not literally true. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's my favorite. I love it. Don't worry. We don't think the snake talked to her. I also love that this world with like a completely different evolution, evolutionary tract than ours has snakes. Like, wonderful. Oh, but they're like, they're diamondback snakes, but literally. Of course, of course. They're like, they oh, no, nice. That was amazing. That. Alan points to you for that. <laughs> That was the only biology section of this entire thing. Yeah. <laughs> I love the involvement of the snake and I love how, you know, the wheels are connected with knowledge um, and it's all tied up with dust. Like it just, it totally works. Knowledge, the best lubricant. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. They're all sexual. This I guess. is not sex ed class, kids. Don't take that to heart. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. I I would okay. I'm not gonna condemn. Them. I'm not gonna make any more further points on that. Um, and then just before we get into uh, Anya and I arguing in our notes, um, Way had this like little throwaway line about the world that they're in, and said we are not colonists because they chose an empty world to set up as the Republic of Heaven. And I'm just like, what an interesting line for Philip Pullman to include. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And specifically for, like, Asriel to give a shit about. Yep. Yeah. I think King of Gunway says that, doesn't yes. he? Yeah, yeah, King of Gunway yeah. says it. Yeah. But it's, but, like, Asriel would oh. have thought of it oh, when he right. was oh, setting totally. it up. Yes. Totally, yeah. I, I feel like we could unpack that for hours, so I don't want to get into it. Uh, just a really interesting line. So I guess this whole thing about the Mulefa, uh, Adam and Eve story, and like the dust, and and like revisiting that for the Mulefa as well, like the dust 
um, is much more strongly, you know, attracted to adults as opposed to children. And, like, I'm still just stuck on the idea of, like, why and, like, what makes adults fundamentally different from children. And I know, (laughs) Kate, you think this is, like, the whole point of the story. And I agree that that is the whole point of the story. But on some level, I still just, like, don't get it as a metaphor. Like, I, I was trying to figure out how to explain this. And, like, I think... I don't buy Pullman's argument that children are fundamentally different from adults in some, like, binary way that has to do with, like, what makes us human. I think it's, it's, I think the way that Pullman uses Dusk is kind of conflating, like, the difference between adults and children and the difference between people and not people in a way that, like, makes me uncomfortable (laughs) obviously like there is a fundamental difference between adults and children in that like adults are mature enough and interested in sex and children aren't but like sex is not what makes us human i mean there's other differences between children and adults i know but i just feel like you know we like he wrote this whole book with like children protagonists who are fucking awesome they're smart they're clever they're playful they like you know all of these things um you know they like use tools you know all of these things that i feel like in a way like contradict his point that you know children are fundamentally different from adults because his characters are like doing awesome badass stuff in kind of adult ways i don't know maybe this is just my problem but i i well so for one thing when you when mary can see dust through the the amber spyglass that she creates um she notices that the kid does have dust and it is there but it's similar to the amount of dust that would be attracted to, like, something that an adult made. So, which is more than an animal or an unworked-on rock, you know? So they do have more dust than non-conscious beings. Just less than the adults. Um, but other than that, I I still think... I think this kind of plays into my point, though. Because... It's the same kind of thing of them not choosing to go and be the main characters, to go and fight in the big war that's happening. They're like, no, actually, I want to go apologize to my friend and I want to go talk to my dad. And yes, they're doing a lot of clever, interesting things to for those goals, but one could argue that they are very childish goals. No, I... So here's the thing. I feel like in isolation, I like a lot of what Pullman is saying about the difference between children and adults. And in isolation, I really like what he's saying about dust and consciousness and evolution of consciousness. But I think together they don't really work for me in the same way that it's like in Buffy where it's like, is magic a metaphor for lesbianism or is it a metaphor for drug addiction? 
and like either one would work but when you mix them it just seems weird and like doesn't quite fit together i don't know if that maybe makes more sense because you're saying that like there's a metric for dust and full personhood yeah it's tr- it's almost saying that like children aren't people in a way that i don't like but maybe i'm just being strangely literal i don't know yeah <laughs> for me the parallelism there is that the non-full dust creatures need the guidance and maybe tutelage of the full dust people. I don't think that necessarily means they're not full and complete people, but they're just have needs. Okay, thought experiment. If mm-hmm. a feral child is raised in the forest by wolves, mm-hmm. would they get a full dust cloud when they hit puberty? Or do they need the the full dust adults to initiate them into their full dustness who knows it's a good question it Um, is a good question yeah i think there's also something going on there with what i brought up earlier of the being and becoming and and seeing the world those two different ways i think for children they want to know what all of the very fixed rules of everything are and that there are definitely answers to every question. And then like when you get older, you realize that there's really no firm answers to anything and that everything is like kind of relational and depends on how you look at it and stuff like that. And so there's like a big difference there in how you see the world I guess, but that might have more to do with how we as adults tell children and what we assume they can handle. So I don't know. And also like your demon becomes fixed and inscribed in a way that like completely contradicts what I just said. So like, I don't know (laughs) either. I think it's, you're bringing up a good point. I guess we can further talk on this as we go along because yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It's an, it is an interesting question though. Like, is he saying that children aren't people? Cause that is messed up. I don't think he's saying that on purpose, but I think yeah. it's a valid interpretation of what he's saying. Uh, and then just something aside that I noticed in this chapter, the monkey speaks. Has that happened before? This really threw me out when it happened. I was like, Whoa, what? I- and it's, didn't even notice but i think you're right that it's the first time and yeah that it's like in retrospect very shocking it feels like the only time yeah i think so i know she goes over like her plans with the monkey later but i don't remember if he answers yeah they they communicate a lot of times with looks Mm -hmm. yeah but but never we never have heard quote unquote heard the monkey speak it's, it feels very much, at least in the show especially, but in the books too, that they keep the monkey from having words because he's scarier then. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly weirder that. for sure. And so this is a weird time to break it. Like, why wasn't it in a more important scene or something? It's very casual. Yeah. it's You could even miss it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, uh, I, I did miss it. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's very odd, and I hope they cut that out of the show. Well, that's it for today. Next time, we'll be talking about chapters 19 through 22. 
If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral, that's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at FrancisWindrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And remember to always use knowledge to lubricate your bearings. The one thing I know in Japanese is uh, I can ask what time is it? Which is... Good. Could you understand the answer? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Yep. I'll just be wandering around Japan being like, what time is it? What time is it? (laughs) Should I just start over? Yes. Yeah, that's all right. Um, This is me, me trying to, not having read this, trying to fix mistakes, but actually just introducing mistakes. <laughs> um. Does somebody have I just music found... or cheering going on in the background? Sorry, there's... You may be hearing the wind. It's uh, <laughs> leaf blowing. I apologize. Oh. I don't, I can't. I can just not talk until he leaves. <laughs> Let you guys Someone carry just the needs show. A, uh, noise gate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. What's her face is there? The the angel, uh Zephania. Zephandriel. Zephandriel. I you two just said two different things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what did what did Alan say? Zephandriel? Is that her name? It's, no. It's, I, no. I don't know. Um that was a link pasted in the middle of my shit. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Thank you for that, whoever is purple. Uh, that was <laughs> uh, me. That was just an errant click. Sorry. It was indeed. I was trying to open click. a new tab. You didn't do it very well. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Dolomite was a character and not a rock. I just did not know that Dolomite is a rock. I used to do competitive rocks and minerals in middle school, so I know all what? of what the rock fuck names. does that even mean? <laughs> what is You just throw rocks at each other's head and Oh whoever... yeah, I did that too. <laughs> whoever drops a grade first loses. This is No, it's like it's like one of those like academic bowl things, but it's like with rocks. They just like set up a bunch of rocks and you have to like identify the rocks and This is the wildest shit that them. I've ever heard. It's like this feels like not gifted and talented enough to do this, the maths Olympiad. Yeah. We've got a rock competition for you. <laughs> and they're like, <clears throat> before everything, they're like, they play that for those about to rock, we salute you. Well, <laughs> I mean, they had like lots of different things. Like there was also um, like a astronomy one. So it was like competitive stargazing. Competitive stargazing i mean it wasn't at night so it was mostly like please give you just just examine that phrase just examine that (laughs) phrase and also examine it wasn't at night what the fuck but okay (laughs) (laughs) i guess it is harder i love that's fair i mean they they give you You, like you get your your kids and you go and you have to like (laughs) identify the stars and you get your kids as like 
what are we going to do with these kids for two hours after school? I tell you what, we'll get them to look for stars using the telescope in the daytime. That'll fucking do them. Because they're more than the sum of their parts. Teamwork makes the dream work, uh, as Plato said. Plato didn't say that. So I like that you felt the need to specify that Plato didn't say that. <laughs> you need to so put that like, next to a picture of Einstein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> but have him say that Plato said it. Yeah. And then it's not my fault. <laughs> Wait, so could everybody else hear what Kate was saying? Because she sounded like a glitchy robot to me. Oh, no. No, I could hear it fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think that was okay, one of the so- smarter things I said today. <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll just have to wait for someone to edit the episode together and listen to your reply. She completely dismantled your argument and like, it was was crazy. That's not true. Uh, No, I I literally could not hear anything. (laughs) I said that there just crapped out for a second. Is your, is everything, can you hear everything okay? Yeah, now you sound normal. It was literally just while Kate was going on her long rant to refute me. Whenever somebody else writes the end, remember, I always just want to come up with my own that's better than all of them, but it never happens. You can. No, I, I, I think I physically cannot. Like, I cannot think of one that's like, better. Like, as soon as, is it because <laughs> yeah. we've made them that you can't? No, uh, well, I or don't know, maybe. Did we just get it's, all the low-hanging fruit? That, yeah, you guys got the good stuff, that's what I'm saying. The, the ideas were in superposition, and then... Because the decision was made. What it really is, is you remember and I forget until I scroll down here. (laughs) 